Please join me in welcoming Matthew Rohr. It's an incredible honor to be here, to be a guest of, of Scott and Christine and the trustees, and of course to share this, this space with Thomas Tronstromer. It's, um, it's a magnificent honor. And so in all humbleness, I come before you all for a second time to plead with you again for political asylum. <laughs> I, know, I know that you thought I was joking last time. I mean, it's a celebration. It's not the right place. But I'm very serious. <laughs> serious is words worth. And why, why, do I need, why do I want political asylum? I have a friend, the poet Christian Hockey. He came to Canada to give a reading. And at immigration, the agent said, what are you here for? And he said, a poetry reading. Classic bonehead move. <laughs> and they took him to a, a windowless room. And they, the agent paced around him. And the agent said to him, so you're a poet? And Christian said, yes, in that way that you have to answer that question. And, and this, this Canadian customs agent said, how do you spell Rambo? <laughs> and so, so Christian said, R-I-M-B-A-U-D? And the agent paced around him for a moment, pawing through his things, and then he said, it's a pity he died young, isn't it? <laughs> and at this point, Christian was looking around for cameras and he said, well, he stopped writing when he was young, but he lived on. And after another dreadful pause, they let him in. <laughs> he was admitted into Canada and confirmed as a poet with one swift stamp of the passport. Justice. Need I say more? This is where I belong. Um, I could pass that citizenship test. So, so I'll be at the bar afterwards and we can discuss the sponsorship, you know, whatever that would take. Um, that was, that's essentially what I had to say to you tonight. Um, I was just going to set up this sort of adoption and then slink away to the bar. Um, my wife told me I needed to say a few other things and I said, but then I'm going to have to have a paper paper up there, unlike Scott. Um, and so as I thought about it, I thought, you know, political asylum, frankly, to me, a little bit beside the point, because I've realized I'm already a citizen of a much larger, much more generous, kind of more beautiful nation of people than can be found on any map. The sad truth is I feel more allegiance to this abstract nation of poets than I do to the people who live across the street. And in all honesty, the political events of the past seven years or so have made it hard to be an American with a conscience. They've made it a little tough for an American artist to know exactly where his or her allegiances lie. And in, in staying up late, worrying about it, even marching on the White House to try to figure it out, which just in case things go sour for you guys here and you're going to march on Parliament Hill, doesn't seem to work. 
um, I realized that there is at least one noble nation on this earth. It's the nation of poetry. And the nation of poetry is precisely everywhere you take it. And it's not going away. And if tonight is about anything besides making two people rich, five other people sad and drunk, <laughs> and a lot of others just drunk, then it's about celebrating our nationhood together. Unfortunately, Scott, it's a remarkably democratic republic, so you don't get to be the king, even though you should be. The point, in fact, that I want to make is that it's nothing less than the People's Republic of Poetry. And now that I've introduced you all to this nation, I've granted all of you in this room citizenship, I have some dire news. The nation of poetry is under attack. Every year, someone pronounces that poetry is in trouble. And the danger always, always lurks within. Poetry needs to be saved from itself. We hear that every year. If only poetry weren't written by poets, they imply. We could have some stability, some regularity, some standards. But the problem is the poets, you know, poets who have actually studied poetry in a classroom setting, poets who aren't also blacksmiths, you know, who haven't lived. Well, I'm here to say, in Brooklynese, it's all good. It's okay. Poetry does not need to be saved from itself. Poetry, as everyone who is here tonight knows, is actually fine. Some of its leaders even have huge banners, like in an honest-to-God republic. Look at them. And those of you who have the banners, when you take them home and hang them in your houses, like you will, and when people laugh at you, and they keep laughing, and they double over laughing, and they're laughing so hard you can't even hear them laughing, they're just jealous. <laughs> the very thing that gives, the very thing that these doomsayers fear is what gives poetry its strength. Poetry is vast and maddening almost in its multiplicity. Poetry is poets who are also blacksmiths, of course. It's also poets who can't even lift a ball-peen hammer. Poetry is even, as much as it hurts us to admit it, poets who cheered for the fascists in the Spanish Civil War. Poetry is enormous. It contains multitudes. But these people, Ken, I'm talking to you. Who are these people? They've never even been to the People's Republic of Poetry, and they want a regime change. They want unilateralism. They want their coalitions of the willing newspapers and blogs and magazines to loyally regurgitate the myth that poetry's dead. No one's reading it. It doesn't speak to anyone anymore. That it's soft, it's corrupt. These people can't stand the idea that someone is having an aesthetic experience that they aren't. They want their narrow concept of poetry to rule all the others because they don't even understand what everyone else is talking about when they talk about all the other mysterious, ineffable, heartbreaking poems that are out there. These people have never even visited the Republic and they want to occupy it and pacify it without gathering any real intelligence on it. The analogy to politics here is way too easy. In the world of bombs and money, these people are evil. In the People's Republic of Poetry, they come across as a big joke. I can't even see the complete picture. 
So why did the newspapers and magazines listen to them and not to us? Well, we need to stand up to them and start by demonstrating that the republic is healthy. Here we are at Scott's and Christine's party. This party can make anything look healthy. This party can make phrenology look healthy. But Scott would be the first to tell you that the party happens because the poetry was already there to celebrate. What else can we do to show them that the republic of poetry is thriving, that it's never waned, it's rich and confusing, full of contradictions and enemies and bitter rivalries and beauty and experimentation? You can all start by remembering that the poetry is there wherever you are, and more importantly, wherever you take it. That is the People's Republic of Poetry's blessed and mysterious power. If you read poetry, if you have a poem memorized, if you write a poem, wherever you go, the Republic is with you. If you set up a reading in a bar, if you take time out of your busy hockey player interviewing schedule to review a book of poems, the Republic is with you. When we leave tonight, the Republic will disperse with all of us. The People's Republic of Poetry is a community of people and styles and a diversity that is almost unknown in all the other human fields. I dare biology or dance or sociology or sculpture to tell me that they even come close to embodying the diversity of methods and styles. It is what gives poetry its strength. Poetry is a community made up of an almost infinitude of smaller communities. And it is in these little communities like Shelley and Byron in their little boat. It is in these communities that the work of the People's Republic is done. I think it's really these little communities that we're here to celebrate tonight. These communities, real or imagined, that have nurtured the seven poets that we're celebrating tonight and brought them together with all of us. I've been extremely lucky to have been a part of several communities within the Republic. The Griffin was the only one that gave me a banner with my face on it. <laughs> the community that we call the Griffin Prizes is how I've gotten to meet all of you. It's why we got to hear the seven incredible readings last night. And it's what is going to stay with you when you go home and you wake up in the middle of the night and you think, wait, that was all because of poetry. Last fall in America, three poets organized another amazing and absolutely unlikely community a bus that took poets, including myself, around the entire country, into Canada for 50 days, giving readings with local poets, sleeping on their couches, drinking the wine that they got for a gift and they were trying to hide, being very briefly a part of their community. I guess I should admit here that I was only on the bus for nine days, but I got a pretty good idea what 50 days would smell like. You just extrapolate. By the end of the 50 days, the poetry bus had delivered about 350 poets to cities all across North America, to two dentists and a handful of drunk students in Las Vegas, to the midshipmen at the US Naval Academy in Annapolis, to some lizards in a crater in Arizona. And everywhere the bus went, people came out, except at the crater, no one was invited to the crater. But everywhere else, people came out, and poets from each city read, along with the unhealthy and hungover poets from the bus. And what happened was that people saw that poetry 
is not imprisoned in books or even in a local scene. Poetry is a community that stretches across the country, across borders, and it brings different people together, however briefly, in an imaginative space. And why does this work? Because the Republic of Poetry is based on a deeper truth, that the poem itself is the site of a powerful community, powerful and a portable community. Quite simply, the poem, each poem, is a little plot of land where the writer and the reader come together, and both of them have to submit a little of their sovereignty in order to meet each other halfway. This is the heart of the Republic, right here in, in the poem itself. There's a reason that the poem from ancient China, from Greece, from Sweden, touches us as readers, as readers of English. It's because it speaks to something in us that is human and some, in some way universal. Think of it, a poem from ancient China, it's so, so terribly removed from our lives. It was written in another language, which we don't speak. It was written thousands of years ago in an unfamiliar landscape, in a culture we can't fathom. And yet these poems can still move us with their simple appeal to human experience, their appeal to us as citizens of the world. The writer moves into the republic of the poem and lures the reader in by connecting in a, in a meaningful way with what is most human and immediate to the reader. For the reader, the citizenship test simply asks him or her to read the poem as someone who is slightly larger in scope and importance than his or her own self, to read the poem as a human. Shelley, as we all know, is one of the unacknowledged legislators of the People's Republic of Poetry. And he makes it very clear to us what our duties as citizens are. He says, a man, and I'm sure he meant to include his wives in this, a man to be greatly good must imagine intensely and comprehensively. He must put himself in the place of another and of many others. As citizens of the poem, we already knew that. What we need to remember when we leave here tonight is that our duty to the Republic is to use our imaginations, to represent the Republic wherever we go, to imagine it always expanding within us, and not just to tell the fearful and the controlling that they're wrong, but to show them, to imagine more rooms like this, more rooms like this where people come together to celebrate the immensity that is poetry. What we should make clear to those who are so certain that poetry has lost its way that it needs to be saved from itself is what Shelley says to them. Regime change begins at home. Thanks. <laughs>